0: Isn't that exciting? I don't know about you, my adrenaline's kind of pumping a little bit. Uh, Yeah, Rochelle made that. Uh, Fantastic job, Rochelle. Uh, Well, I just want to say it is uh, an honor and a privilege to share the word of the Lord with you uh, one final time. Uh, We have uh, three weeks left, um, but we're looking forward to spending those uh, with you. And uh, on the 5th, we'll have a party and have a lot of fun, so we're looking forward to that as well. But this morning, uh, we are in week three of our sermon series entitled Heroes where we are looking at the heroes of our faith from the Old Testament and Jesus. And uh, as we've been looking at these different heroes the past few weeks, what we've discovered is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Amen? God uses ordinary people, people who are flawed and broken and sinful, people like you and people like me, to do extraordinary things and to advance His mission and His purpose in our world and to advance his priorities. And so two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Duane uh, talked about Abraham, the great father of our faith, the father of nations, and we learned that even Abraham had struggles in his faith. He failed to believe the promises of God at certain points in his life, and he lied to people, Uh, and yet God still used him in a spectacular way. And then last week, we looked at the story of Joseph, Uh, A man who had a chip on his shoulder and a bad attitude when he was a teenager, thought he was better than all of his brothers and and sisters, Uh, and eventually, through a series of tests and trials, God used Joseph, God refined his character, and used him uh, to save the lives of thousands of people in Egypt during a famine. Remember that? Uh, And today, we're going to be fast-forwarding in history a little bit and looking at a man by the name of Gideon. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with Gideon, Uh, they named the Bible after him, and uh, we're going to be looking at him, think about it, Um, and uh, one of the things that we learn about Gideon is he was a man of fear and reluctance, he was a man of cowardice, and yet God still used him in a spectacular way. But before we uh, open up the scriptures, will you please join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we are hungry and thirsty to hear from you. Father, we are hungry and thirsty for a word from you that will pierce our souls and change our lives. And so we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts, would soften our hearts. If there's Uh, If there's callousness, if there's distractions, we pray that you would remove those things. If there's any obstacles between us hearing what you're saying to us this morning, we pray that you would remove those things, and we trust that your spirit will will, will talk to all of us this morning. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, earlier in the week, uh, Kelly, uh, my beautiful wife, uh, put the girls to bed. Most of you know we have two daughters, uh, Adeline and Chloe, who are three and five, and she put them to bed, and about 20 or 30 minutes after they were asleep, uh, I hear uh, this racket in their room, right, and they're awake, and they're playing, and they're on the ground, And uh, so I go in and uh, open up the door, and Chloe is over here playing, and as soon as she looks at me, she has these huge bug eyes, and she just starts shrieking. She just starts screaming like, you know, a vampire had come in her room or something like that, and then she starts hyperventilating. It took her about 10 minutes to calm down, and eventually it turns out that she thought I was a real-life monster. Uh, I don't know if I looked like one or not, but she thought I was a monster coming to get her. And Chloe is scared of monsters. And I don't know if you're scared of monsters or not, uh, but all of us are scared of something, right? Fear is a universal human emotion that we all deal with in different ways. There was a study that came out a number of years ago by the Book of List. And what they did is they surveyed 3,000 people and they asked they asked them what their top fears were. And according to the book of lists, these are the top 10 fears of Americans. Number 10, dogs. That's number one for me. Number nine, loneliness. Number eight, flying. And then death, sickness. Deep water is number five. Financial problems is four. Insects and bugs, heights. And the number one fear of Americans is speaking before a group of people. It's public speaking. Which means that most people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. Which, according to Jerry Seinfeld, means for the average person, if you had to go to, to a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than the one doing the eulogy. Right? I love that. Well, fear is a strong emotion. It's something that uh, causes us to do all kinds of crazy things, and the man we meet this morning is a man that is gripped by fear. His name is Gideon, and he is gripped by fear right off the bat, and we learn why in the book of Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to crack them open at this time and turn to the book of Judges chapter 6. Uh, We'll be starting in the verse 1. If you're following along in your sermon guides, uh, the text is there as well. Judges chapter 6 verse 1. This is the word of God. This is the word of God for the people of God at Hope Covenant Church. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for 7 years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites, because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, which was in the south. They did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like a swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count the number of camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So in this opening scene, uh, the writer says that the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we know from later on in the story that the evil that's being talked about here is the evil of idolatry. The Israelites were being seduced by the Canaanite gods that were in the land, by Baal, who is the main Canaanite god, the god of the storm, the god of fertility, by Asherah, who is a very popular female goddess, and they're prostrating themselves before these gods. They're worshiping these gods instead of worshiping Yahweh, the covenant god, the one true god who rescued them out of Egypt. And as a result of this, it says that God has given Israel into the hand of these Bedouin semi-nomadic people who lived on the east side of the Jordan River. And so these people, the Amalekites and the Midianites and the other eastern peoples, are sweeping into the promised land. They're sweeping into Canaan, and they're absolutely taking everything they want. They're stealing their crops and their cattle. They're plundering Israel. And Israel, God's chosen people, is forced into hiding. They're forced into cowering in caves. They're forced into running away from these eastern peoples. Of course, the Israelites didn't have a standing army or a walled city, so they would have been an easy target to attack. But in the midst of this, Israel has nowhere to go. They're defenseless, they're helpless, and the text says that they cry out to the Lord for help. Right? They offer what I call an oh-no prayer. Have you ever prayed an oh-no prayer before? Uh, You know, when your back's up against the wall, and you just say, oh, no, God, help me. Uh, I remember the first time I prayed an oh, no prayer. I was a little kid, and we were having uh, a birthday party in my backyard for me, uh, and uh, all my friends were there, and uh, I was in Long Beach, California, and I had a handful of those metallic foil balloons, you know those ones? And I decided it would be a good idea to let go of them right underneath the power lines behind our house. Uh, I don't recommend that, Uh, but they floated up, they hit the power lines and the transformer box, there was this big pop, and sparks started raining down on my backyard, and all of a sudden the power went out all the way down the street. It even shut down the power at the Vaughn's grocery store a mile away, and I remember in that moment saying, oh God, help me, right? (laughs) And that's what the Israelites are doing here. They're saying, oh God, help me we need you. We don't have anywhere else to turn. And in response, God sends to them a fearful farm boy named Gideon. And we meet Gideon for the first time in Judges 6.11. Look with me there. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under an oak in Ophrah that belonged to Josa the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So here in this opening scene, we find Gideon, our main character in the story, absolutely terrified, absolutely scared. And the text says that he's threshing wheat in a wine press, which would have been an absolutely ridiculous, silly thing to do, right? Everybody knows that you thresh wheat outside in an open place, preferably on the top of a hill. And the way you do it is you beat the wheat as hard as you can, and then you hurl it up in the air, and the wind pushes away the chaff, and you're left with this nice... Pile of pure wheat. That's how you do it. But what the text says is that Gideon is doing this in an indoor, closed in, sheltered structure in a wine press that was used to crush grapes. And the reason for that is because the Midianites are on his tail and he's afraid and he's terrified and he's cowarding. The Gideon that we meet at the beginning of the story has a cowardice spirit. According to the dictionary, cowardice is a trait. Where fear and excess self-concern override helping others in a time of need. It's a failure of character in a time of challenge. And that describes Gideon. There's a failure of character in a time of challenge. But as the story progresses, we learn that God takes Gideon from a spirit of cowardness eventually to a spirit of confidence. To a spirit of confidence. If cowardness is a fearful spirit, confidence is a courageous spirit. Confidence is a feeling or belief that there's someone you can rely on. It's an inner strength that gives way to courageous action. And in our story, God has chosen Gideon to deliver the Israelites from idolatry and foreign oppression. But in order for him to do that, God has to do something in his life first. God has to change his heart. God has to do some transformation in order for Gideon to take this amazing opportunity before him. And that amazing work is moving Gideon from cowardness to confidence. And the big idea of the sermon this morning is that God wants to take you and me from cowardness to confidence. He wants to take us from fear to faith. All of us struggle with certain things. All of us have, have, have cowardness or fear over some areas of our life. You, not, you might not be as scared of monsters like my three-year-old is, but you're scared of something, right? Maybe it's sharing your faith with other people. Maybe it's fear about some health concern that's in your life or or about giving generously to the work of the ministry or loving your enemies. There's something in your life that you are scared of, and it's precisely in those areas that God wants to instill a God-centered confidence this morning. In Gideon's life, he moved from cowardness to confidence in three phases. We're going to be looking at these this morning. It's what I call the woe, the no, and the go. Okay? Say that with me. Woe, no, and go. All right. That sums up Gideon's life, and that's where we're going. As God takes Gideon through the woe, no, and go phases or steps in his spiritual development, he eventually builds faith and confidence in Gideon's life. First, there's the woe phase. The woe phase is where you realize who you are and what you've been called to do. Look with me at Judges 6, 12 through 16. In this passage, the angel of the Lord has come to Gideon while he's threshing wheat in the wine press, and uh, the angel of the Lord, like at most places in Scripture, looks like a normal human being. You wouldn't be able to identify him in a lineup. He, he walks and talks just like us, and as far as Gideon knows, that's what he is. But we have insider information. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon as he's doing his chores, as he's threshing wheat, and he says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders of our ancestors told us about? When they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. So in this passage, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and he says to him, the Lord is with you and you're going to be a mighty warrior. And In response, Gideon says, I think you got the wrong guy. <laughs> I, th- I think you're trying to find someone else because the Lord is not with me and he's not with my people If he was, life wouldn't be so hard. If the Lord was with me, life wouldn't be so difficult. We wouldn't be oppressed by these foreign people. Clearly, the Lord has fallen asleep at the wheel, and he's not with me. And number two, I'm not a mighty warrior. I don't know if you've looked at my CV yet. I'm not sure if you've seen my resume, but I'm a farm boy that's the youngest in my family from one of the most insignificant tribes in Israel. I don't know who you think you're talking to, but I'm not a mighty warrior, but as the story continues, Gideon's perspective begins to change. The angel gives Gideon a sign. He uses the tip of his spear to light a sacrifice, and after some back and forth and conversation, eventually Gideon comes to one of these whoa moments right? One of these moments where he says, whoa. He realizes that God is talking to him and that he has been called for a great mission and that absolutely changes everything. And I want to tell you something. This morning, God wants each and every one of us to have a whoa moment. It starts when we realize who we are. We're not just a mighty warrior, but according to scripture, we're also sons and daughters of the king. We're royalty. First John 3.1 one says that you are a child of God. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The most important thing about you isn't that you're a spouse or an employee or a boss or a sister or an American, or anything else. The most important thing about you, according to scripture, is that you are a son or daughter of God, and that you matter to the creator of the universe, and that you are part of a larger body with brothers and sisters, because you are connected to Christ, and you have an inheritance, and you have a future to look forward to, because you are a child of God. Talk about a confidence boost. I don't know if you ever struggle with your self-esteem. I don't know if you ever struggle with wondering if you're good enough, if you're a good enough Christian, if you're just an imposter. I think most of us have probably had those feelings at one time in our life, but according to Scripture, God loves you for who you are, not who you should be. And according to Jesus, who you are is a son or daughter of the King if you have said yes to Jesus. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that following Jesus doesn't require perfection. It requires availability. Somebody who was available, I met earlier this week. Uh, I was in uh, California, in Southern California, on uh, Sunday night because one of my best friends from high school got married, finally. And uh, it was a fantastic wedding. And on Tuesday, I had to get back here to Phoenix, and uh, my parents were both busy, they live down in Orange County, and uh, so I called an Uber car to take me to LAX. Has anybody ever taken an Uber before? Yeah, it's a fun experience. Well, it was my first time, so I called the Uber, and within five minutes, there's this five-one South Korean lady at my doorstep, and uh, she's spunky, and she's fun, and she doesn't speak very good English, Uh, But I get in the car and we drive to LAX and hit traffic and it takes over an hour. And over the course of this hour, we begin to have this fantastic conversation where she tells me all about her life. And she tells me about her two kids that send her money uh, every single month. And she tells me about her job cleaning houses and driving Uber cars and just how, how great life is in America and how she's so thankful to be here. And then she starts telling me about Jesus she doesn't know I'm a pastor, she doesn't know I'm a Christian, but she starts telling me about Jesus, and as soon as she does, she starts crying. She starts crying, not because she's sad, but because she's happy, because Deborah Park, this first generation South Korean who's only been here for a few years, understands that she's a daughter of the king, and that Jesus loves her, and that changes everything in her life. That, that, that leads to these woe moments, even in the Uber car with a total stranger where she breaks down in tears. Her faith identity is what defined her. That's the reason why she goes to church five nights a week to pray. It's a reason why she's trusting God, even though her husband's dying of liver cancer. It's why she prays for each and every Uber uh, customer that she gets, including me. Deborah Park knows who she is. She knows that she has been called by God for a great purpose. She's not a big shot in this world. She probably doesn't matter very much to most people in Southern California, but to God, she is precious, she is chosen, and she is called, and she knows that. Do you know that? Do you know this morning that you are precious, and you are chosen, and you are called by God? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen to do great things. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has pray- prepared in advance for us to do. God has already prepared good works for you and I to do. How do we overcome our spiritual cowardness? First, we realize who we are in Christ. We realize what our identity is and what God has called us to do. This is what I call the woe moment. That's step number one. Step number two is the no moment or the no phase. The no phase is where we begin to say no to the God substitutes in our life, to the counterfeit gods that get in the way of us worshiping the one true God. For Gideon, this came in Judges 6 Verse 22, look with me there. When Gideon realized that the angel of the Lord, that when Gideon realized, pardon me, that he was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Verse 24, so Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord of Peace or the Lord of Shalom. To this day, it stands at Ophrah of the Abizarite's. That same night the Lord said to him, take a second bull from your father's herd, one that is seven years old, and then listen to this, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah temple beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God right on top of it. So in this text, God tells Gideon to say no to the God substitutes in his life. He tells Gideon to tear down his family altars, the altar to Baal and the Asherah temple. He instructs Gideon to take this this bowl and to tow these things down, to smash them, and then on top of that, build an altar to Yahweh, the one true God who has authority over everyone. And as the text continues, Gideon takes 10 servants and he obeys the word of the Lord why is this so important? Why does God care about a bunch of sticks and stones? Well, the reason is very simple. It's because humans were created to worship God. The reason you exist, the reason I exist, is to worship God. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The reason you and I exist is to make much of God. It's it's to worship Him and praise Him and adore Him and to direct and focus our affections and our attention and our thoughts and our lives into understanding and lifting Him up and magnifying Him. And idolatry robs God and us of that goal. The fundamental problem of the human heart is that we worship counterfeit gods instead of the one true God. We have these God substitutes that we place in our life. I don't know what this is for you. It's probably not a wooden idol. I don't think we have a lot of people in the occult here at Hope Covenant Church, Uh, but I would venture to say that many of you have idols, right? Maybe it's success. Maybe it's success at work and climbing up the corporate ladder. Maybe it's a pleasure. Maybe it's money, addictions, material possessions. It could even be something good like health or family, a good thing that you make into a God thing. Or a good thing that you make into an ultimate thing. An idol is anything that controls your security, your hopes, your identity, and your sense of worth. Is there anything like that in your life? Is there anything in your life that you supremely love, trust, and serve more than God? Anything that you supremely love? Is there something in your life that you daydream about? That you think to yourself, if I could only have this, then I would be happy. If I could only go there, then I would be satisfied. Then I would have the life I've always wanted. Is there something in your life that you trust, that you place your faith in besides God, that behaves like a functional savior? And is there something in your life that you serve more than God with your time and your money? One great way to identify the idols in our life, the counterfeit gods, is to look at our bank balance, right? A lot of times we spend money on the things that are most important to us. Is there anything in your life that you supremely love, trust, or serve more than God? If so, God is inviting you this morning to remove those from your life. To put him back on the throne of your heart where he belongs. The Bible says that our God is a jealous God and he hates idols. He hates it when we divert our attention away from him and on to other things. This is the no face. All of us are invited to say no to counterfeit God's. Next comes the go phase. After we get out of the wine press, after we smash down our idols, then God invites us to publicly follow him. The go phase is where we go do great things for God. And for Gideon, this meant delivering Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Look with me at Judges 6.33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed into the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. He blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, Nephtali. So they went up and met them. So in this passage, Gideon is obeying the word of the Lord. God is called. Gideon to be this army general, to be the next George Washington for the Israelites and to bring them deliverance. And so Gideon calls the troops to war. He blows the trumpet and in comes 32,000 people from the surrounding tribes in Israel. They rally together for war. They rally together to fight the Midianites. But before they do, as the text goes on in chapter 7, God tells Gideon, you got too many men. If you win this battle, you'll be tempted to take all the credit. So what I want you to do is to send send, uh, 22,000 troops home. Just let them go. And so 22,000 troops go home. Gideon is left with 10,000. And God said, that's still too many. So he sends more home. And finally, Gideon whittles his army down to 300 people. 300 people. And God says, okay, now go attack the Midianites, right? What do you do in that situation? Are you crazy? Well, he does. And so he attacks the Midianites. They go at night with trumpets and torches. They ambush them in this surprise attack where it it, it appears that there's more troops than there really is. And miraculously, the Midianites uh, get in this panic. They start freaking out. and They start turning their swords on one another. And then before they know it, they're, they're retreating out of the Valley of Jezreel. And eventually, they're cut down by the rest of the Israelite troops. And Israel wins the war. And Israel pushes back these Bedouin people. That have been attacking them. It took a lot of confidence for Gideon to attack the Midianites with 300 people. But Gideon was confident because he knew God was with him, because he had moved from cowardice to confidence, because he knew that with God the impossible was possible. It takes a crazy confidence sometimes to do what God calls us to do, doesn't it? It takes a crazy confidence sometimes to follow the will of God. The problem is, oftentimes, if you're like me, we we tend to underestimate our potential. We tend to underestimate the Holy Spirit who lives in us and invites us to do great things for God. How many of you have heard of the four-minute mile? Have you heard of the four-minute mile? For thousands of years... Uh, runners have been trying to break the four-minute mile. They've been trying to run a mile in under four minutes, and for the longest time, they couldn't do it. Uh, The ancient Greeks used to try to do it, and they couldn't do it, and so they decided to give their runners a little bit of incentive, and they released wild animals, tigers, lions, bears, and chased after the runners on the racetrack. They would put tiger milk on their backs. Can you imagine being in that race, right? But it didn't work. And uh, even the ancient Israelites, or even the ancient Greeks, couldn't run a mile in under four minutes. Uh, In the 20th century, uh, they didn't release wild animals, thank goodness, but they did try to break the record. And runners tried and tried and tried, and they couldn't do it. And so eventually what happened is there was medical journals that started to say that it is physiologically impossible to run a mile in under a minute. You can't, you have to run like 15 miles an hour. You you just can't do that because of our skeletal structure, our muscle mass, our lung capacity. There's no way a human being could ever break the four minute mile. Everybody just said, okay. Until 1954, when a young medical student by the name of Roger Bannister in Britain ran a mile in three minutes and 59 seconds, right? He broke the four-minute mile. He did the impossible. He, he proved everyone else wrong and did what people said was impossible. And once he crashed through that barrier and the rest of the world saw that it was possible, other people followed in his footsteps. And from 1954 to 1957, 18 people broke the barrier. And since 1957 to now, over a 1,000 people have, right? Over a 1,000 people have. God calls you to do great things for him. He calls you to look beyond human barriers and see divine possibilities. And the good news is that when we do that, when we foster and instill this God-centered confidence in our souls, it inspires and challenges other people to come along with us. When uh, Tina Freeman, who was in here earlier, uh, invests in our kids and leads people to Christ and spends her time during the week here, other people want to ride the wave with her. Other people are inspired and encouraged. Other volunteers in the children's ministry want to step up. When when some of you other volunteers, uh, like Sue and Karen Faust. And Paula Edmonds are serving in different ministries and singing and leading our San Marcos ministry in Acts. It encourages other people to come alongside you. It encourages other people to do ministry as well. There's a a contagion factor in ministry. There's a contagion factor where when we see people doing God's will, we want to join along with them. And I'm here today to encourage you to do great things for God to do things that you think are impossible. Can you imagine what this church would be like if we all committed to doing great things for God? What would the community look like? What would our families look like? What would your jobs look like? What new innovative ministries would spring up organically at this church if all of us had the spirit of Gideon in this phase in his life? I think the possibilities are endless, but it starts with each one of us committing to move from cowardness to confidence. It starts with each one of us going through, go, going through the woe, no, and go, right? Experiencing the woe of who we are in Christ and marveling in that and starting there. It means all of us experiencing the no of rejecting God's substitutes in our life, of not settling for second best, of not worshiping and spending all of our affections and time on things that don't really matter, that don't have eternal value. And finally, it means experiencing the go of standing up and getting in the game and actually joining God in his mission in the world. And that's God's invitation to you, and that's God's invitation to me this morning. And as we close our time together, I want to leave you with one final question. How is God calling you to move from cowardness to confidence this morning? How is God calling you to move from fear to faith? Is there one area of your life that you could focus on today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our desire is to be men and women who boldly follow you. Our desire, Father, is to be men and women who do the impossible through the influence of your Holy Spirit, Father. We don't want to get tangled up in counterfeit gods. We don't want to get tangled up in false identities, Father. So I pray that you would bolster our faith identity, our identity in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage and boldness to destroy the idols in our life, to destroy the God substitutes, the thing that that rip us off from true life, Father, from being all that you have created us to be. And I pray, Father, that you would give us dreams and visions For this church and for our ministries and for our lives, Father. We know that with you all things are possible. With a muster seed of faith, we can move mountains and change the world, Father. We pray that you would help us do that. In Christ's name, everyone said, amen. 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 All right, well now we're going to move into a time of giving. Uh, If you are a guest with us today, uh, thank you for being here. We're glad you're here. If you'll drop the connect card uh, in the offering plate later on during the service, we would appreciate that. Um, But I just want to say that we don't expect you to give anything. Please feel absolutely no pressure to give. This time is for members and regular attenders, and if that's you, uh, I would encourage you to give joyfully and generously to the work of the Lord here at Hope Covenant Church. Will the ushers please come forward?